we are in the condition we are in, in the state of ignorance we are in, in the state of war, in the state of economic depression, in the state of depletion of the resources of our planet because of the greed of psychopaths who thought they could create their own reality. Well, look at the reality they created. You're listening to The Truth Perspective on the Sot Radio Network, the world for people who think. Doubt, sadness, inner conflict. These are our feelings that we have not learned to live with, that we have failed to appreciate, that we reject as destructive and completely negative. But in fact, they are symptoms of an expanding consciousness. Reality becomes multi leveled. The choices between higher and lower realms of behavior occupy our thought and mark us as human. Dabrowski calls this process positive disintegration. Welcome back to The Truth Perspective, everyone. Today is Saturday, June 6th, and I'm your host, Elon Martin. With me in the studio today is my co-host, Harrison Cayley. Hi there. And editors of SOT.net, Shane Lachance. Hi, everybody. And Carolyn McCallum. Hello. You can call us here at 718-508-9499 to chime in and share any observations or thought you have um, regarding the subject matter we discussed today. What we just heard in the intro was from the 1975 film made by P.J. Reese. It was an interview with... Kazimir Dabrowski, the Polish psychologist, psychiatrist, and physician, and his ideas concerning personal growth and development. Uh, Harrison, for several years now, you've been looking seriously into Dabrowski's work. Uh, I thought we'd begin today by simply asking, why Dabrowski? With all the prominent and better-known psychologists of the last hundred years or so, why did you want to discuss his work today? Well, for a few reasons. First of all, just immediate, the immediate reason why I thought it would be a good idea to talk about him is Red Pill Press has just published a new book. Um, it's called Personality Shaping Through Positive Disintegration by Kazimir Dabrowski. So it's a plug. Yeah, shameless plug. And, <laughs> and it was first published in 1967. It's one of his English language books, and it has been out of print since 1967. So, of course, we're very happy to see it back in print and available for less than $400. That's the, the current price if you look on Amazon or uh, Abe Books for a used copy. Um, there was only one that I could see actually available. So it's now available um, on Amazon and CreateSpace and in Kindle, too. And so, uh, well, I first found out about Dabrowski from reading Political Ponderology because... Andrew Lobachevsky was, of course, a Polish psychologist and, um, well, a generation younger than Dabrowski, but he does mention Dabrowski in the book a few times, mentions his work. Um, they were at least somewhat, um, well, they had at least some minor interactions. It's hard to know if they you know, 
much they corresponded, if at all. Um, Lobachevsky just mentions uh, a couple, mentions him a couple times. One time, just mentioning that Dabrowski thought that there were more psychopaths in the world than Lobachevsky thought there were. And um, so, just from that reference in the book, I checked him out and found out that uh, there's a website, positivedisintegration.com, that has a, a lot of information on on Dabrowski. And so, I I've, I got copies of all the books from you know, basically on CD from from one of his students. Um, and but they, you know, like I said, none of them are available. They're all out of print. They're all super expensive and hard to find. But as for you know why Dabrowski, I think, like you were saying, a hundred years and all these different psychologists, I think that Dabrowski is the only one that has managed to kind of take all of the the good bits from all the different theories and fit them into something that is comprehensive and coherent. So uh, kind of like a full picture of the human um, of human nature, um, the human psychological nature from from the most uh, base aspects, the more, more primitive aspects like uh, like psychopathy up towards the highest. And so that's a, differenti- a differentiation that you don't see in most psychological theories. Either you get something that is completely materialistic, like behaviorism, that just focuses on behavior and doesn't differentiate between any kind of um, inner processes that might be different between different people or different kinds of motivations for certain behaviors. Um, we've got more modern theories, um, or just not even theories, but just perspectives like, you know, the wisdom of psychopaths where you, you take this concept and then, you know, try to find the, uh, the positive aspects to it where there are none. And then you've got Freudianism, which is just, a um, <laughs> uh, well, we can, we'll talk about Freudianism a bit later on. Um, but what Dabrowski does is he manages, like I said, to take, what might be true from certain from certain aspects of these theories and to put them all together in a way that makes sense so we have an understanding of the the very um varied or uh, multidimensional aspects of human nature so why are there so many contradictions why why are there differences between people and why do they seem so great at times and this goes way beyond just simple personality tests, like if you're more introverted or extroverted or, or, um, you know, openness or whatever the, you know, the five big personality traits or anything like that. It, it's, it's so much more in depth and just seems to capture, um, the humanity of psychology. Um, that's one of the problems that I have reading a lot of books by psychologists and textbooks or, or just pop psychology is just how simplistic it all is and how much gets left out and how much is just wrong. And so Dabrowski seems to be, um, to just give uh, a, a bigger picture that takes into account all of that stuff that maybe gets ignored or, um, or sidelined or, or totally misrepresented. And we can get into, de- we'll, we'll, we will be, we will be getting into details of, you know, some of those things, um, some actual examples of those things as we go through the show. Well, one of the reasons perhaps that Dabrowski did not achieve the popularity of some of the other mm-hmm. <clears throat> big names, Freud and later on Adler and Maslow and all those folks, is that he was, number one, embracing of suffering and considered this a good thing, whereas the majority of psychology 
at least as practiced today, seems to be to focus on taking away suffering, just saying, okay, you feel bad, let's figure out why you feel bad and find a way to stop you feeling bad. Whereas Dabrowski's approach was to say, yes, you feel badly and we'll find out why, but then to self-craft your personality that expands and integrates that. God, that sounds pretentious. <laughs> but but the idea was is that it was not something to run away from, but that there were lessons within them to have and also he handed the responsibility very much back to the people he was seeing. He there's a quote in the movie, highly recommended, where he said, I don't like Oh, just wait, I've got the clip here. Got the clip here. Yeah. Perfect. <laughs> we won't spoil it. All right. But yeah, so this is a this is from the interview from that video. Um, just a little clip to give you Something of Dabrowski's perspective on therapy. So here we go. And even I, as you know, I dislike the uh, too often visits of like of my patient. No, no. This is three, four, five. This is sufficient number. And after we transform psychotherapy to autopsychotherapy. And from this stage, it is not necessary to see very often psychologists or psychiatrists. (laughs) Close your ears, Freudians, or any other (laughs) practitioner of psychiatry or psychology. Mm -hmm. I mean, because for a modern practitioner of these magical arts, it's the magical source of income. So, of course, you want your patients to be coming once, twice a week for the rest of their lives, right? Well... Not for Dabrowski, like, like you said, Carolyn. He wanted to put the the emphasis on the se- on the self and self control. So he was just there to to help them take control of their lives, and by giving them the the tools and the the definitions and the ideas in order to understand what they are going through and how to utilize their so called symptoms in order to grow from them and to transform those symptoms. So he wasn't about uh, elimination of symptoms. That's another quote from the the video. That he views the that practice as like this kind of surgical removal of symptoms, which will only lead to a negative result, because you can't eliminate symptoms like suffering or the um, just the various inter uh, or inner conflicts and problems that people have. What those are, those are the material with which a person has to work in order to develop. And so by just removing the symptoms either with drugs or with some kind of self-calming narrative to end the suffering that really ends the possibility for growth because that suffering is there it is a sign that there is something that needs to be worked through and that there is uh, a higher level out of which uh well from which to come after getting out of that lower level of suffering so his approach is totally antithetical totally opposite to to most psychological practices, most therapies available, not only then, but probably most of them today as well. Yeah, I I worked in the human services field for a few years, and that was one of the things that you'd see uh, that is pretty much, you know, this continual therapy that people would get, and it was on and on, and you don't see, you don't see these methods working. You know, you don't see the clients taking on the reins of um, this you know, self-improvement themselves, but it's, it's this dependence on, you know, whatever type of therapy. And I think there's elements in 
you know, the Freudism and, uh, and others that it, it sees these, uh, these symptoms as, uh, you know, a negative thing, a bad thing. And, you know, really that's a, a condemnation of human nature itself. Mm-hmm. And what Dabrowski did, you know, he, he turned things upside down and said, you know, no, these, these things are, you know, what it means to be human. These things uh, define meaning for us. Mm-hmm. And, and by uh, analyzing it and looking at, you know, what, what the causes are uh, and, Creating these uh, values, uh, one of the terms that Dabrowski used was a hierarchy of values. And by looking at what you're going through and, and what you can achieve, uh, he, he places these, you know, there's this hierarchy where uh, these things have more meaning and, you know, and, and, and people can, can gain insight into their own, uh, into the things that, you know, that they're going through. Well, just on the on the subject of the hierarchy of values, there's an important distinction that needs to be made there, because the one of the main aspects of Dabrowski's theory, uh, theory of positive disintegration, was its multi-levelness. So he means something very specific by that: that there are actually multi, uh, multi, uh, different levels of human behavior and kind of your inner being. It's not just a matter of if someone values something more than the other, because he, because you could easily say that, okay, well, let's look at a psychopath. Well, a psychopath might value one thing over the other, so he has a hierarchy of values. And that's not exactly what he's, what he's talking about, because if you have someone that in one situation might value one thing over the other, it could be um, just that they're valuing their, their own uh, personal gain or the, the subordination of other people to themselves over something else. But that's just uh, a product of the instinct or the the psychological program in action at the moment. That's kind of what defines a person at a low level of development is that they are completely controlled by their biology, by the just the instinctive patterns of behavior that are within them. So depending on the situation they're in, they'll just be controlled by the instinct that is running them at, at that time. So they might be, they might, in one situation, they might be feeling all right. You know, as Gurdjieff would say, that you know their stomach is full, so they're feeling great, and they might show some kindness to a person or behave in a way that will be perceived as kind. But if they haven't eaten that morning or something's happened and they're in a bad mood, then they'll be angry, and nothing will inhibit that anger or a display of anger or even violence to another person or worse. So they're operating at the level of an infant, in a sense. In a yeah, sense. but I mean yeah. that that Absolutely. idea that that. However, you feel at the moment is the whole world. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. and uh, you know another thing that Gurdjieff said was that every man is a Christian after a cup of coffee. Uh, <laughs> but you know that this whole discussion of um, of values is being so integral to what Dabrowski was talking about. Uh, on a more mundane level, um, you know, somebody might value a, a, a green shirt over a blue shirt because that's yeah. their favorite color. Um, but what we're really talking about here are, uh, the values that would suggest, um, uh, more integration, uh, more wholeness, um, more authenticity, um, valuing the other, uh, other people, mm-hmm. uh, your connections to other people, uh, how well or not well, uh, you find yourself interacting and, and, uh, being considerate of others. Uh, which is nothing 
uh, new to us, but um, what I'm finding so fascinating about Kowski's work, just um, getting my, my feet into this, uh, uh, the, you know, his work um, is just how closely uh, his ideas follow those of uh, Gurdjieff's. Mm-hmm. Um, and one in particular, um, especially as regarding, you know, not rejecting uh, suffering outright or looking for total alleviation is uh, Gurdjieff's um, discussion of inner friction or inner conflict as a way to, to build character uh, and a way to grow the self. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he talked about uh, avoiding buffers or avoiding these these ways um, that people quite often do to, um, you know, to avoid suffering. Um, buffers just make things easier. Uh, Alcohol is a buffer. Uh, dissociation, another buffer. Um, so uh, the value we get from Gurdjieff and, and now Dubrowski in this new framework is uh, don't, don't avoid it. Uh, see it as material from which to work on yourself. But what I seem to think is, or it boiled down to is he was looking for a way to develop more, more inner consistency that regardless of situation, you, by knowing yourself and knowing the way you react to things that you can be in control of the behaviors you choose to display, not to display the attitude with which you approach it, that you're not blown about by every wind and circumstance that, that you, I guess they would call that um, the integration of it, that you become a consistent, solidified personality mm-hmm. with, with reactions that are appropriate. Well, on that note, I'll, I've got a few passages from the book of Dabrowski to read. Mm-hmm. So this is from personality shaping. First, this one's on suffering. Um, To get back to Alain's point of uh, the the kind of similarities with Gurdjieff's work. So this is from page 216. Suffering elevates a man, ennobles his spirit, but this takes place only in cases of active suffering as a result of conscious will and an effort to sacrifice oneself in the name of a higher ideal. Now, on the stuff that Carolyn was talking about, um, first, let's. I'm just going to give a little intro to the book. It's called personality personality shaping. So, it's all within the framework of of the theory of positive disintegration, which you know it's hard to summarize in a sentence. But if I could, it's it's the, the disintegration is kind of the internal conflict um, or, or suffering that a person goes through. It can, in its most extreme form, would be a a case of psychosis, but on the lower level, it might be a depression or anxiety or um, existential anxiety, just some kind of inner conflict that someone's going through. And the positive part of it is that out of that, out of the suffering comes a higher level uh, of being than there was before it. Now, there's all kinds of different levels and gradations and stuff. We may or may not get into all the details, but this book is about personality shaping in the sense that for for Dabrowski, one of the differences with Gurdjieff is um, is just the terminology that he uses. So for Gurdjieff, of course, personality is is the low level. It's just the the the, the shell that your that yourself is taken as a result of social forces and and uh, and and heredity and just kind of the 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 full person that has been formed um, mechanically through through the the formative years of a person's life. 
for Dabrowski, personality is actually the goal in the sense that he, he would call just ordinary people in their everyday lives individuals because they all have certain things different from everyone else. You know, we've got different different hair color faces or different constellations of personality traits and interests and all that. So we're all different in certain um, surface level ways, but, um, and then that's our individuality, but um, on an, on an essential level, we're pretty much the same in that we're on a, uh, most, most people are on a pretty low level of development, but personality, I'll read his definition of personality that he gives. So personality in the context of this work is a name given to an individual fully developed, both respect, both with respect to the scope and level of the most essential positive human qualities, an individual in whom all the aspects form a coherent and harmonized whole, and we possess in a high degree the capability for insight into his own self, his own structure, his aspirations and aims, self-consciousness, who is convinced that his attitude is right, that his aims are of essential and lasting value, self-affirmation, and who is conscious that his development is not yet complete and therefore is working internally on his own improvement and education, self-education. So for Dabrowski, probably very few, if any, people on the planet have, are, have a personality, just to get a little bit of the, the language out of the way. But on the subject of where people are now, this is. I found this quote to be interesting in light also of Gurdjieff. <laughs> uh, we usually perceive only that portion of reality which the quantity and organization of our receptors of external and internal stimuli and of our transmission stations permit us to perceive. So I'll just break that down a bit. So we've got um, external and internal stimuli, um, and we receive them through these transmission stations um, and and through these receptors. So the amount of reality that we can perceive depends on the quality of the quality and organization of those receptors, of that ability to, to perceive reality. So the implication of that, of course, is that without very good receptors or with fewer receptors or disorganized receptors, we actually won't perceive certain aspects of reality. I think we've all had an experience of that where we're talking to someone and they just don't get something, right? It just goes right past them. It's it's because they literally can't perceive, they can't see the reality in front of their face just because they don't have the, the hardware or the software to be able to, to do it. There's, but then perhaps is the implication that through Dorofsky's work, that reception can be improved. Possibly, and that would depend, again, on the on the person and the and what they've got what uh, what they came with basically yeah. so. there is actually a uh, an interview up on sot right now with uh with lavrov and God, yes. uh, a reporter from uh, bloomberg news and you can see it's just it's really frustrating on one in one sense because uh the reporter is you know putting these questions these inane ridiculous questions and lavrov you know, He's he's very patient and in he's very you know elegant in his in his description and the guy just doesn't get it like he doesn't get what he's saying you know, he's twisting his words and he's he just doesn't understand the words <laughs> the the reality that that Lavrov is 
is uh, expressing. Uh, it's, a, it's a good kind of example of. Or he this. asks the same question three times. Lavrov answers it three times, and finally he says, "You're infected with American thinking." <laughs> it's very entertaining. You should really go go onto the science page and and watch it. It's educational beyond all telling. <laughs> uh, just um, not to digress, but uh, for those of you viewers or listeners who've, who are just tuning in for the first time, we, we've been making reference um, a number of times to uh, George uh, Gurdjieff, uh, whose uh, work we've referenced a lot here, and that informs a lot of our thinking. Um, he was basically a teacher of, uh, of a fourth way school. Um, dealt in uh, esoteric knowledge, but mainly, mainly um, he was teaching psychology and the psychology of growth. And so uh, in case um, references to Gurdjieff were lost on any of you, uh, that's who the guy was. We also highly recommend uh, reaching or reading um, In Search of the Miraculous by P.D. Ospensky, uh, which is a, a fantastic uh, discussion of uh, Gurdjieff's ideas. And what I like so much about Dabrowski is that a lot of the concepts in Gurdjieff are also in Dabrowski, but the, they're just said in a different way and in a different language. So I, I personally find Dabrowski more practical in the sense that I can, I can relate all these ideas to things that I've experienced or that I'm going through. I can put the name to it. Gurdjieff was really difficult. Like you really have to, had to work for it to, to even know what he was talking about. So he, he'd come up with a term and then you just had to figure out with what, figure out what the term meant, you know, af- through, th- through much uh, suffering and, and effort. <laughs> well, it's interesting because there's so much comparison between uh, the actual content, uh, but the, the systems themselves, they're so unique from, you know, our general way of thought, you know, particularly probably, you know, Western way of thought that, you know, it is, it, it is, these are foreign uh, to, you know, what we commonly know. So this use of language that each have, you know, it's useful to um, redefine things uh, as as they, you know, as they explain different terms, so that you can understand their system. Uh, you know, if you're going in and trying to define things as you know them, it's not going to work. Mm-hmm. Um, well, Harrison, you you brought up um, the term positive disintegration, and um, I think you know. I know the first time I heard that term, uh, I was, uh, a little bit, uh, Ooh, you know, kind of, uh, <laughs> I wouldn't say put off because I <laughs> wasn't quite clear on what it meant. Um, uh, you know, it's loosely defined as a disorganization or disillusion of mental functions and structures, um, or suffering, uh, due to inner conflict. And, um, I think, I think that a person kind of goes through this, uh, disintegration when they come across some kind of barrier or block in their lives where they come to realize that what they're doing or how they're being just isn't working somehow. And um, you might call it a, a kind of a crisis or mm-hmm. um, yeah. or a, an experience of a shattering of self-confidence. Um, but, you know, the value, as I'm seeing it, of, of Dabrowski's work is that it's at these times uh, that we can uh, take advantage of the opportunity uh, where things are kind of shaken loose. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, if we've, um, you know, crystallized on a foundation or, or we've kind of built ourselves up 
looking at things through the the um the the lens of a of the ego um then having that ego shaken up um having these uh you know self doubts can actually be a a constructive thing if embraced and worked from mm-hmm. and not uh, only that i think um something about the name when when i first heard it too um but after reading a bit more on it um the word disintegration has a, a catastrophic connotation. Now, disintegrations can be catastrophic, and you know everybody, I'm sure, in their lives has gone through one or more of them. But I think if you're alert to them, these disintegrations can be in one area or another and don't necessarily have to be life-shattering. But if you're alert to them and, and alert to these opportunities, you are almost – could – potentially be in a state of continuous integration once you become, you know, aware that this part or that part of your thinking is causing trouble, is not working, is whatever. What did you mean by being in a state of continuous integration? Well, just that if, if you're, if you're alert to different areas of your life where things aren't working, mm-hmm. as opposed to letting them all pile up until, you know, you're, Looking for some, you know, Xanax or something. Well, it's it's kind of like that, you know, life provides us with yeah. pretty consistent opportunities to learn you know, about the different lies we've told ourselves. Right. But if you keep ignoring them and ignoring mm-hmm. them and all of a sudden you are on the floor hoping mm-hmm. for some Xanax. <laughs> well, just a uh, kind of a, a technicality of, of well, based on Gert, or Dabrowski's works is that it's probably not a good thing to be in a continuous state of integration, just in the sense that it's only by disintegrating an existing structure or an existing habit okay. that a new habit can be formed and then be reintegrated. Okay. So if a person never experiences a disintegration, they will never grow or change. Okay, well, what I meant was that the process can be an ongoing thing. Yes, absolutely. That's that's what I meant. By yeah. You're not continuously integrated, everything is great, No. but just that the the process is not something that stops or starts according to every crisis you know well i wanted to get back to something elon mentioned earlier you know about that uh how you know, these various things in our lives uh can kind of prompt um you know these various crises and it seems that natural life um, kind of creates some of these opportunities like you know, when a teenager is is going through puberty or you know midlife crisis and so on but it seems that you know our our environment itself as it is today that that creates tremendous amount of uh, opportunities to uh to you know, really see what's going on and mm-hmm. to feel it and to learn from it yeah <laughs> and and by the same token uh western culture as we experience it today provides so many buffers and, and so many ways precisely to avoid looking at, at things as they really are. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, you know, at the same time, we have uh, the new Red Pill Press publication of, uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> of personality shaping. And, um, and so there are these other kind of, um, you know, forces of, of wakefulness uh, and tools that are being made available to us. And having the tools is... is- is the important thing. I mean, the, the suffering a lot is 
for many people is seeing and having no idea what to do about it. Mm -hmm. But Dabrowski's whole thing was, okay, here are things that you can utilize that will help you process your, these, you know, very, very disruptive, unpleasant, uncomfortable, painful feelings. And, and that's the hand that he held out to people was, you know, your suffering can't be taken away from you and there always will be suffering, mm -hmm. but here are a means of making something good out of that and improving and elevating yourself. I'm going to read a few more uh, sentences, paragraphs from the book, and then we'll play another clip. So this is in the section on self-knowledge and knowledge of others. The basic Socratic thought, know thyself, is always actual for everyone who consciously realizes his ideal of personality. It goes hand in hand with a fundamental query. Who am I and where am I, and where am I going? Learning to understand oneself consists in seeking an answer through experience and meditation to the questions. What is it in myself that is not me? What is it that I am becoming, although it is not yet crystallized? And what should I strive with persistent will to make myself, although it is not yet myself, through meditation, contemplation, and continuous effort? Now, as for what taking this path entails, if one is to take up the task of shaping his personality, he must be morally vigilant at all stages of development. One should at all times guard against self-deception, self auto-suggestion, the inclination for self-justification, the attitude of pretense, convenience, and egoistic motivation. And one last one. After one attains the level of personality, suggestion in judgment, feeling, and action is replaced by conscious yielding only to those environmental influences which harmonize with one's distinct and firm convictions, and by a conscious rejection of those influences which act upon one's subconscious and uncontrolled drives, jealousy, conceit, and the like. Thus, at the level of personality, there occurs a weakening of susceptibility to various environmental influences, that is, to inf impulses stemming from the lower nature of man, to multi-directional discordant stimuli, influences of public opinion, and so on. It should be clearly stressed here that the attitude of constant refashioning and of selectiveness in relation to external stimuli is opposed to instinctive and stereotyped mechanisms, in other words, automatic behavior. Such an attitude requires the controlling of our internal environment and principally control of its instinctive and habitual level. So basically, Dabrowski is calling for self-control. The differentiation between external stimuli and our reactions to them, and even our internal stimuli and our reactions to those, and how we behave, how we act based on those stimuli. In order, in other words, to put up a type of wall or a way station between those stimuli and our response. So we receive the stimuli. Something might get make us angry, or just just give us some emotional reaction where our impulse is to just act out immediately in a stereotyped mechanical way. Dabrowski's saying, no, you've got to actually stop that, stop the reaction, and then choose your action based on what, based on your own values and the, the kind of the personality ideal that you have realized and shaped for yourself. And in doing this process, um, it relates back to uh, Gurdjieff and you know, you're, 
you're creating uh, what Dabrowski called the subject object. So you're cr- kind of creating the seed for a soul, if you could call it that. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, uh, there's this something that can develop, you know, that is more me or that ought to be me. Mm-hmm. And uh, by by going through this process of separating yourself um, from, you know, these other mechanisms and observing, having this self-observation, you're growing that piece of yourself. Um, if I could, uh, I have one quote on subject-object, and it just relates so much to, you know, how uh, Gurchev's perspective too. That um, I thought it was fitting. Uh, in order to educate man uh, himself, a man should, as it were, split himself into a subject and object. That is, he should disintegrate. He must be the one who educates and who is educated, and he must also isolate himself in the uh, active entity and the one which is subordinated to it. The structure or set of the higher level must continually uh, react upon the structure or set of the lower level, and the higher feeling must uh, react on the lower feelings. So you're going through this process of uh, looking at yourself, you're separating yourself, uh, from your reactions, and um, one of the one of the interesting things that you know kind of uh, goes throughout Dabrowski's theory is you know you're you are doing this type of autotherapy, so you, know, you are in charge of it. But it's not just yourself. Uh, he also calls for you know having an advisor and uh, and also having other others uh, play a part. Um, so yeah, I just wanted to. Well, that that, piece. that was uh, pretty interesting, and um, I just wanted to mention that um, in general, uh, you know, being rigorous with oneself, um, being honest, not lying to oneself about what one is feeling and why, what one is telling oneself, and why, it's hard, uh, or it can be. Um, you know, we we have uh, we have our egos and our, um, our sensitivities. And, um, you know, as we were discussing this, I was thinking, well, what, what does it look like? What does all of this kind of work, uh, resemble when we're actually doing it or, or when we're on our own, for instance, um, alone with our thoughts and our feelings? Um, you know, suppose we, we were just, uh, we just felt sensitive to a comment that someone else made or, or something. And, you know, we can decide that that person is a jerk and maybe they are, or maybe they're not. Maybe their observation was valid. And, uh, and, and you can go through these, these thoughts and emotions. And I think the, the degree to which you're honest with yourself and serious with yourself about your response, um, is the degree to which you are engaging in, uh, this, th- these feelings of disintegration. Um, you know, do you allow it to, uh, overwhelm you? Uh, do you make black and white decisions based on, you know, this external and internal friction, uh, or do you build on it? Do you decide that you're going to really think about, um, uh, the stimuli, think about the statement, think about your own thoughts and feelings and why they're there. So, um, yeah, it's just a, a, a way I think that uh, can be practically applied to this type of work. It's 
it's kind of sitting with uh, all the thoughts and feelings that um, that you've that's been thrust upon you in a way. Well, this is this next clip is a little bit of advice that Dabrowski gave to a young man. I believe he was seventeen years old. Uh, named Brian. So in the documentary, you can go, if you look at the show description on the Blog Talk radio page, you can find a link to a YouTube channel with the two videos. So I'd highly recommend watching them. They're entertaining and insightful. And so this young man was at a, a hospital in Alberta, and he saw he was extremely shy. He had had, um, well, a few just kind of big problems in his life. And so he was in this hospital and Dabrowski was seeing him. And so this is some advice that the young man, Brian, was given. And well, I, I want to add something, Brian. Think about many times. You should at the evening, when you are alone, to think that you, in relation to all reality, or stimuli, you should be controlled by yourself. This means you should look at your inner stimuli and external stimuli, look at them, and to be in some extent independent of such a stimuli. Not act always immediately on the basis of stimulation, external or inner, you know, but well, to have some moments of how I can say, reflection, and after to do this or another kind of action. This means to be always controlled by yourself. You understand me? And think about, well, even five minutes before you sleep about all this. <laughs> now, it seems like just common sense advice, but... Personally, I've never heard that in my entire life. Mm -hmm. I've never heard heard it in such a way in you know reading psychology books or just from the the mentors or you know, authority figures in my childhood. Mm -hmm. No one's actually said that to me. To to look at the influences coming from the world, all the reality, internal or external, and to to be controlled to only act out of your self control from your from yourself. Now, I don't know. Well, usually what you're handed as a child is a set of rules. Yeah, this is what you got to do. Whether you're society or society plus, you know, if you've had a religious upbringing, I mean, God knows you got piles of rules, but you internalize them and you abide by them as best you can without much thought. Mm-hmm. And yet, you know, should you should you happen to not be able to abide by them perfectly, you still have piles of guilt with no means of alleviating them other than, you know, if you go to confession and that never really did it. So, <laughs> And then that's the end of the process. Yes. yes. So that's what you learn and then that's what you're stuck with when mm -hmm. realistically there should be new rules as you grow up, you know, as you go through puberty, as you become a young adult. Mm -hmm. There are new ways... New well, first of all, there are new capabilities, new possibilities at those ages, and therefore there should be new instructions. But we're left with just the the childish rule set, mm -hmm. and that becomes the the social structure that we're in in society, where we just follow the rules. And in these days, you're even lucky if you have those. Yeah. <laughs> you know, at least they're yeah. baseline of civilizing influences, but uh, hardly something I would 
produce, you know, a mature, well-functioning, psychologically healthy society. Mm-hmm. Well, Dabrowski, he does, he takes these ideas, you know, of um, uh, a, a parent and you know, teaching their child, you know, having these restrictions and, you know, there's this punishment and reward and he takes it steps further, you know, that these, uh, these things can be integrated or a part of the child himself and that there's these higher things that, you know, punishment and reward doesn't need to be the be all and end all, but that, uh, things like conscience that can also provide, uh, a means of, uh, punishment and reward, you know, letting you know what basically, you know, what's right and what's wrong. You're not just being told what's right and wrong, but you're, you're utilizing those things from within yourself. That's where the importance of an advisor comes in. Because like you said, Shane, Gurdjieff wasn't a total, or I keep saying the wrong word. Dabrowski wasn't a total individualist that everyone's just on their own. It very, there is very much a social aspect not only of love and friendship, but of this kind of teacher-student relationship. Now, what he called an advisor, he's, and he ta- there's a whole chapter, s- several sections in the book on advisors. What they, the kind of the criterion for an advisor is that they have to be at a higher level of development because it's only a person at a higher level of development that can see what that person or that child is going through, and their and to through their own experience to therefore be able to give the right kind of advice to help this person through this process. So for a parent, a parent really, to be a good parent, has to have, an ex- first of all, an experience of what the child is going through, which they hopefully should have, having gone through childhood, but then also an, uh, an understanding of that process. So to be able to look at the child, to see the problems that the child is going through, and to be able to pick out and see those aspects, uh, or uh, Dabrowski would call them dynamisms, and then the appropriate response to to bring that dynamism that that nucleus of a higher quality to to fruition so it might be a feeling of guilt and then how to steer that guilt towards something higher towards conscience as opposed to just following the rules mm-hmm. so well, you you feel bad so i'm going to make you feel bad because that was wrong and that's what you have to feel when you do something wrong so that you don't do it or don't do it again mm-hmm. that's a very basic juvenile system of uh, of developing a, a young personality. And so that just reading that section, just for me, it, it was actually pretty depressing because there is nothing, there is nothing like that in our society. We don't have a system of proper mentorship or uh, advisor relationships with a person who helps us develop our own personalities and to, to become better, higher people. We're we're just left on our own, and we're lucky if we can find something to 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 help us along that process. Otherwise, we've just got what society gives us. And one of the concepts that Dabrowski develops in this and, and his other books is um, along the lines of what psychologists call adjustment. So criminals are maladjusted, and good members of society are adjusted. That's the the uni level. Um, simplistic approach to to adjustment you're either part of the team or you're not you're either with us or against us right it's the george bush method of uh of looking at society but dabrowski differentiated that he says well it's not quite that simple 
because there's positive adjustment and negative adjustment, and there's positive maladjustment and negative maladjustment. So, of course, negative maladjustment would be like a criminal. It's someone who goes against society or society's rules um, for bad reasons. It's because they really don't have any kind of empathy or uh, social connection to the to the people that they live with, and they just destroy. They are a destructive influence in society. But then again, you've got positive maladjustment. So in this case, this is this is what I like about Dabrowski is that he said he. There's another quote I can't remember it, but um, like Krishnamurti or Krishnamurti. Yeah, yeah, Krishnamurti. It's, it's no sign of mental health to be well adjusted to a sick society. Yeah, exactly, and that's that's pretty Dabrowskian. That if society isn't worth being adjusted to then it's better to be mal- maladjusted to it. And so there, are, I'd say there are most aspects of our society aren't worth adjusting to or, or accepting because they are, they are the product of this low level of being. Mm-hmm. And the people in these positions of power and in these positions of influence in, the, in media and the arts and politics and even religion, th- these people themselves are operating on a low level and that low-level influence filters down to everyone else. And so for a person with any developmental potential, they will hopefully, well, first of all, they will just feel that something's wrong, kind of like Neo in the Matrix. There's just something not right here. And then as they become more aware of themselves in society and are more clear about what's going on, they become more knowledgeable about the all these aspects, then they can identify these things that are wrong and why they're wrong and then take a, a moral stance against them. Mm-hmm. And even that, like a moral stance against something, the the whole concept of, of a moral stance has been totally perverted in our society. So we can't even be adjusted to morals because according to official morality, it's right to hate Russia and want to go to war with them for totally absurd reasons that aren't based in any kind of reality. Mm-hmm. So... Just in general, I think that reading Dabrowski is just a um, a very effective way uh, and a, just a great aid in in first of all coming to know ourselves and what's going on with our inside of ourselves and what these things actually mean and the possibilities that that our experiences open up and that we might not even have been aware of beforehand. We might have just seen certain aspects of ourselves as problems. Or and insoluble problems, but to to see that there is kind of you know light at the end of the tunnel. There's some hope there. That there is some hope, and that oftentimes these things that now I'll qualify that oftentimes, but not always. So you know, don't get full of yourselves. Oftentimes, these are actually positive things about ourselves that we should embrace and develop further. Now, of course, just on that, it's very easy, and this is a problem I see. It's very easy. To, to just take something like certain aspects of Dabrowski's work and then just use them as a means to puff oneself up mm-hmm. and to make one, you know, to make someone think, oh, well, you know, I'm, yeah, well, well which <laughs> I has, think pretty highly of myself. Or, which, yeah. which has been done in, yeah. uh, among Dabrowski's work itself. Yeah. And a lot of uh, the kind of driving force and um, kind of maintaining his theories has been around the... Uh, the gifted yep. uh, with children, and you know, there's some authors uh, out there who, you know, are really <laughs> uh, full of themselves and, and and kind of distorted his uh, his ideas a little bit and kind of made it a little bit more um, narrow than I think it actually is. Mm-hmm. 
And, but getting back to what you were saying about, you know, our leaders, uh, Harrison, uh, Dabrowski has these, uh, different ideas about these levels. And there's this primary level, this primary integration where, it's basically, you know, the, the low level uh, way of being Just where, enough to get along. Yeah. And, and where our primitive drives kind mm-hmm. of rule us. Mm-hmm. And this is really the level that psychopaths operate at. And when, so they're out there and, and they're ruling society and having their influence on people and this causes in itself you know, this um, this process of neuroses. You know, we're we're kind of living in this poisoned uh, this poisoned well, and you know, it's going to affect our, our thinking and feeling. And so we'll have these manifestations. Um, Lobachevsky talks about it in terms of the hysteroidal uh, cycle, mm-hmm. and and it's by when when these times you know reach these you know really uh he, he called them like Rasputin eras and you know that's that's uh, that is what we're facing today and you know wouldn't it be great if instead of having you know these leaders that are basically at the lowest level of humanity if we actually had leaders who were uh, you know were able to eat either achieve personality. I mean, that would be the ideal, but even people who are able to achieve those things, mm-hmm. you know, having them in power, that would be or at least uh, striving for it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, Shane, you, you mentioned neuroses and, um, there's a, you know, um, Dabrowski has a term called uh, psychoneuroses, which, which he suggests, um, would, you know, without it, we'd been, we'd be unable to, uh, grow and develop ourselves. Um, so I thought we'd just look at the term itself, neuroses, uh, at, a, at its kind of base level um, so that we're all on the same page about what a, neuros- a neurosis is. Um, the term is derived from the Greek word neuron, or nerve, and the suffix osis means diseased or abnormal condition. So um, there are many different types of neurosis, uh, obsessive-compulsive disorder, uh, obsessive-compulsive personality disorder, impulse control disorder, anxiety disorder, hysteria, and a great variety of phobias. Um, and Wikipedia says that according to C. George Bory, uh, professor emeritus of Shippenburg University, uh, other symptoms may involve anxiety, sadness, depression, anger, irritability, mental confusion, low sense of self-worth, uh, behavioral symptoms such as phobic avoidance, vigilance, impulsive and compulsive acts, lethargy, uh, cognitive problems such as unpleasant or disturbing thoughts, repetition of thoughts, obsession, and he goes on and on. You can kind of extrapolate from there Um, because we've all experienced uh, neurosis in some form or another. Uh, But something you said, Shane, about um, neurosis kind of being induced um, by by the leaders and, and, uh, the kind of, uh, cultural authorities, uh, that we have. And so, um, uh, it, it's a, it's a, it's a kind of, um, it's a weird way of looking at it, but it's a natural and healthy response to the crazy making mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. psychopathic influence, exactly. uh, that, um, that we're all under. Well, it's kind of like a collective gaslighting. I mean, the, the leaders get up and stand, talk about, you know, values and protecting democracy and, you know, 
humanitarian aid, whatever you want to call it. And then you go and watch five YouTube videos and you know, it's, it's a lie and trying to put those two things together in your head make, make you just crazy. Mm -hmm. And then you get depressed and upset and anxious and, you know, there you are. Hysterical. Mm -hmm. And these, uh, these moments of hysteria, you know, they really show that the people responding this way, they are human, Mm -hmm. right? And that there is something behind that hysteria. Uh, I think Dabrowski would term it um, developmental potential. Mm -hmm. And it's that, that, that we really need to utilize uh, to, uh, to, you know, get out of this mess that we're in. Right. As opposed to drugging it. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's work. It's work, and a lot of people, that's a very off-putting <laughs> part of it. Well, on the subject of neuroses and psychoneuroses, that's just another area where Dabrowski is so, or was so ahead of the curve, and even um, even ahead of the curve today, because one of the things he did was he he tried to identify levels of neurosis. So by through all his clinical practice and um, and studies on the people that he had experience with, he could see that there are certain types of neuroses that cluster around lower levels and then certain neuroses, which he would call psychoneuroses, that were more of a, a higher level uh, phenomenon. So some of the lower levels would be, well, at the lowest level, you'd have just base paranoia. And that would be like Lobachevsky's paranoid characteropath. Um, just a very low level of development and, and brutal paranoia. But then the types of unilevel disintegration, so that would be a disintegration in the mental uh, emotional structure that doesn't and often cannot reintegrate at a higher level. So a person just breaks down, and if they recover, to use like the disease terminology, if they recover from that, they, they, they're no better off than they were before, and in some cases, in some cases are even worse. And so the extreme case of unilevel disintegration would be just outright uh, psychosis or suicide where the person cannot uh, cannot pass through and transcend that level of, of neurosis. And so these types of neuroses are often, in low-level um, cases, the more psychosomatic, they have more bodily um, manifestations. So this can be like certain types of hysterical disorders or conversion disorders, where the symptoms actually primarily, um, there's a, like a predominance of symptoms in the body, which have no... Um, or, you know, very little actual, you know, biological basis. It's uh, psychosomatic. At the higher levels, it's more of an internal psychic, so mental um, neurosis. And this is where we might have more things more like depression and anxiety, and even the subject of what someone is depressed or anxious about. Mm -hmm. Go ahead. Uh, This this idea of unilevel disintegration, yeah, I think it's really interesting because... Basically, what it says is that somebody may go through, you know, this conflict, and they they may go through this process of disintegration. And with multi-level disintegration, you're bringing in these higher values like others and, and conscience and and so on. Uh, with unilevel, you know, it's a struggle with maintaining yourself at that level, and you can reintegrate at that level and. Dabrowski uh, brings up this um, this third factor, which is basically choice. Mm-hmm. You, know, you you're you you have uh, this this free will, and are you going to engage in 
this, uh, this suffering in terms of bringing yourself to a higher level? Or are you, are you not going to, are you going to choose to, you know, avoid those things and, um, just maintain the struggle of, you know, keeping your, um, your personality as it is, uh, or, or, you know, your, your, your face, your saving face and, you know, and you, and you bring yourself back down to that level, or you might just, yeah, you know, have a, a, a psychotic break and, and, um, or worse. Mm-hmm. One thing I, I found kind of interesting just watching the films is that one would hope that the majority of people do have some kind of instinctive will to health. Uh, there was the interview with the lady, uh, what was her name? Uh, Ursula. Mm-hmm. And I don't know whether that clip was all one interview, but through very gentle, skillful extending of help, of of suggestion, you could watch this woman from practically catatonic. Well, yeah, just to give some background, she was in a, a depression for 10 years. 10 years. 10-year-long depression, and you could see on her face, she was just, she was not there. She was her eyes were mostly she closed. Breathing. She was looking, was, yeah. looking at the at the floor. Very little connection with the the two pe- other people in the room, mm-hmm. and uh, you c- you can see on her face that she's been depressed for for ten years, and there's very little contact, social contact, human contact with people around her. Mm-hmm. But but as as he spoke to her and and just just very gentle, simple suggestions to consider this possibility to consider that possibility um a tiny bit of very gentle scolding that you know it would be good if you were to interact with people more to think of other people more I've to got the do, clip to do something for them oh play it it's wonderful well so in between he was explaining what he was doing and so he he mentioned that he'd observed that she had no contact she, she was cut off from from other people and so he wanted to to establish that connection with her, to bring her out of that, to 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 make her to to make her interested in the conversation, and to 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 take an interest in her, in order to establish that kind of human contact. Mm-hmm. So this first clip, he's he's like you're saying, Carolyn, giving some some suggestions, some advice on on what might be better than shutting yourself off uh, in a in a depression like that. For instance. If you occupy your uh, emotional life, your thinking, with, uh, or occupy with others, you will not think so intensively about your depression, your obsessions and so on. If you will develop your social attitude toward other people, you will diminish um, many your of your egocentric states. And then a bit further on, oh, do you want to comment on that one? Well, I would just say, you know, that that's an idea that isn't so uh, um, foreign to us here as well. I mean, it's, um, and kind of the whole idea is that you're you're helping yourself by engaging with others, mm-hmm. by helping others. Um, and, uh, you know, being there, uh, their psychologist or their um, uh, a means of uh, of emotional psychological support. Uh, it kind of you're imparting another way of being to the person who's struggling, um, and simultaneously 
um, you're you're kind of growing yourself because you're you're extending yourself and reaching out and um, and so yeah, it's wonderful to hear uh, Dabrowski talk about it in his own way. Mm-hmm. This is something else he had to say to her. If you are in good theater and you observe, well, dramatic persona, yes, how you tell this, and you, you see heroical people, they are in very deep depression, sadness, anxiety, but they are heroic, you feel at the same time something like, well, like a very good enthusiastic attitude, and you are at the same time very sad. And this mixture, this mixture of suffering and of enthusiasm uh, gives you possibility to, well, to, to go up to the higher level. That, that last piece I was talking about, going up to the higher level, and I think that was, uh, well, for one, just listening to Dabrowski is just so awesome because uh, you know, just the, the kindness and empathy Enthusiastic attitude. (laughs) And enthusiasm (laughs) just comes through. And, uh, but when he's, when he's getting her mind out of, you know, the, this depression is kind of, uh, there's more to it that there are these higher levels. Uh, I think, uh, so many people are shut off from that idea that, you know, these higher levels don't even exist. We don't, you know, Mm -hmm. we don't know. Mm -hmm. And we're just sitting here in this, in this depression. Um, but for him to introduce these ideas that you know this this depression can um, is a, a sign or an indication that there's something more behind that, mm-hmm. and that she can tap into that, and she did mm-hmm. uh, at, at the at the end of the interview, she's smiling and and you can see it in her face. She's connecting with the other interviewers, making and, eye contact, yeah, and, posing for the pho- photographer. Yeah, it was really heartening. But yeah. then then it would have been up to. You know, I don't know how much longer her treatment went on, but then if you're going to do this for a person, I mean, I'm not saying Dabrowski personally, but just in general, then it's there's a responsibility to continue to support that, to continue to to provide. And that's where Dabrowski, this, as the levels of integration go up, then it becomes a more social group thing, you know, that each encourage the other. Well, but also that the responsibility does fall on that person then. Right. So like you said, he, he depending on the yeah. case, of course, it would depend on how many times that he would see them. I think he even, I either heard or read somewhere else that he, he'd even prefer if he only had one or two meetings with right. someone if they had the, you know, the, the ability to, right. to work on their own. But to put that into their own hands, mm-hmm. so, so to work with a person just enough that they're steered in the right direction so that they can work on themselves, right. on their own, but with, at the same time, with a social group because other people are so important. Mm-hmm. But that role of an advisor is is that very specific role and giving to the right moments and in the right circumstances and with the right advice. Mm-hmm. So it's there, there's more than one aspect. There There is the social aspect about being in a group of people mm-hmm. and and all working together, but there is the, the responsibility of each person on their own to take that into their own hands. Right. And so... What I liked about one thing that I liked about those clips was, like you said, Carolyn, he, in, a, in another bit, he he does give a few gentle, uh, gentle nudges, mm-hmm. <laughs> we call them, and one of those in there is that he's just totally honest. 
he essentially says that your depression is totally egocentric, that you're only focusing on yourself and your own problems. There are other people in the world. Mm -hmm. And if you focus on them, on being there for them, you won't be focusing on yourself so much and you won't be suffering as much because you'll actually be doing something positive mm -hmm. for others and by extension for yourself. Right. And it was interesting how he uh, kind of set the stage for her by mentioning uh, going to a, uh, a play or some performance that would include a hero who's suffering. Mm -hmm. And, um, and so I think the suggestion there is that, um, you know, without blowing it up too much, uh, that, um, the heroes, the protagonists, the people who, um, who are, uh, the center of a, of a, an adventure or a drama also go through stuff. Mm -hmm. And, um, and, and by, uh, engaging in such a narrative to some degree, um, you know, you can recognize a hero. Uh, and I think Joseph Campbell alludes to this as well. They struggle. Um, but they're struggling usually, uh, for the greater good of something. Um, and they're doing what they're doing in spite of their, uh, difficulties. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Unfortunately, a lot of, uh, our media and, you know, fiction and, um, movies and such are, you know, just based on this really twisted and corrupt, uh, uh idea of just this, you know, on, on this primary level, but the original purpose of, you know, this, this, these forms of, uh, dissociation and in, in entertainment, you know, uh, may, may very well have been relating to, uh, being able to go through uh, and identify uh, these these processes, and I think uh, Gurdjieff even spoke on this too. That mm -hmm. uh, the original uh, Greeks, mm -hmm. when when they had these plays, it was for car uh, catharsis, it was to produce this car uh, catharsis, and you know, and we can look at that in terms of um, perhaps we can look at it in terms of you know going through these um, uh, these levels of disintegration. Mm -hmm. And helping, helping us to move move those things along, yeah. to vicariously experience pity and and sadness and empathy for this presentation of of the of the story was a way of of working through that. Even if you weren't necessarily experiencing it yourself, it still gave you the tools and the understanding. Yeah, and you know when when you think of the tra the Greek tragedies, I mean these were these were. Heavy duty uh, stories that that ended uh, pretty badly quite often, um, and they you know they didn't include heroes exactly, but um, I think you the point was to learn from their mistakes in some way and the struggle and the struggle. Yeah, well, I'm going to play another clip and then read another bit from the book. So this one is on Dabrowski's ideal of multi levelness. So this gets back to the subject object that you were talking about, Shane. Because, um, well, according to Dabrowski, he would say that up to 60% of the population is at the level of unilevel integration, primary integration, sorry. And so for these people, there is no subject-object. They are one, one individual, and that, so there's no inner reflection, no self-insight, no self-control, no differentiation between different levels of oneself between higher and lower values. Um, now, did was Dabrowski defining um, people at this level as psychopaths? Because 
it's not really clear in places yeah he would say that the that primary integration was psychopath was psychopathy but like i like yeah like you said his his definition was very broad there are other places in his works where he's a bit more specific and basically saying you know a bigger batter psychopath mm-hmm. and those would be the 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 guys that like lobachevsky calls essential psychopaths or whom we call psychopaths um like in w- our western psychiatric psychological framework like with robert hare's work so yeah he does use the word a bit differently in in a lot of his wo- in a lot of his works uh so just to keep that in mind so yeah Dorowski said that 60% of the population were psychopaths mm-hmm. uh you know within a certain definition <laughs> and we could, we might understand that in terms of uh, authoritarian followers I yeah think that would be probably the better term for it yeah yeah and so the 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 origin of multi-levelness in oneself is first of all a curiosity about oneself, an interest in oneself, and in you know, like the questions that I read out earlier about um, you know, who am I? Where am I going? What is not me? What am I? What do I wish to be? But I am, am not yet. Those kind of questions are the, the beginning of of self knowledge, of self insight. From there, that knowledge becomes much more in depth and comprehensive. But it's based on uh, an awareness of the levels within oneself. So the, an awareness of the lower natures and the higher possibilities. And then th- that brings things into conflict. So we realize that our old ways of doing things are no longer satisfactory to ourselves. Maybe they're not, they're not getting us what we want anymore in a certain sense. They're not working anymore. And new values arise. And so the old ways become... Um, hindrances towards our further development but that's founded on this awareness in oneself of these different levels so that's what he's talking about in this clip you have this need very deep need to be animals from time to time but if we are people with something like different levels of functions, we observe ourselves and we dislike to be always on the primitive level. This means to be aggressive, to be completely egoistic, to be stupid, to be well, subordinate, uh, with tendency to subordinate others to our primitive instincts. And this is basis for so-called multi level aspect of our human being, of our human nature. And you observe this multi-levelness in each human phenomena. This mixture of animality with higher human nature. And if you act as a highly developed human being, we will never go down towards toward the most primitive aspect of your life. So, just so you know, that clarinet in the background, that was being played by Brian, the 17-year-old, um, the, the shy, timid one, to whom he gave that advice that we at the beginning of the show to always be in control of oneself, just so you know. Well, um, as we just heard him speak, I was just thinking about the cognitive sciences and um, metacognition and how you know developing conscious uh, choice and uh making distinctions between, uh, you know, what the types of things that we're motivated by uh, is so important. So 
you know, it's it's like we're kind of describing um, or looking at all of these uh, various approaches um, to to growth. Um, you know, metacognition. You know, think about the way that you think. Um, you know, using uh, your your awareness and choosing to um, reflect on the thoughts that you're having um, and not simply reacting or acting on certain drives automatically just because they're there and they happen to be very strong at the moment. Um, you know, uh, or Jeff might describe it as having different eyes. Uh, Gene DeSalzman describes it as, um, you know, separating yourself uh, between your, you know, your two parts, your higher and your lower. So, um, again, it's wonderful to, to uh, hear uh, Dabrowski describe, you know, what we've been reading about and, and thinking about in, in these other terms. Well, I just want to read a, a bit from the book on that. So we were talking about subject-object, and Dabrowski makes an important distinction here. This dynamism should not be identified with the, conce- the conception of introspection accepted in psychology. Psychological introspection is used by us in the observation of our own psychological processes, exclusively to, to determine the form of their course, their correctness, associations, and so on. The significance and the tasks of the subject-object in, in the psyche of one and the same individual dynamisms are considerably further-reaching. With its help, the individual knows himself in the sense of knowing the motives and aims of his own actions, his own moral, social, and cultural self. In other words, this dynamism serves the aims that are connected primarily with one's higher development, with the development of one's own personality, and not only those connected with the cognition as such, or cognition for the purposes of scientific research. The character and the very genesis of this dynamism, therefore, show us that there are essential differences between it and the introspective method in psychology. So Gurdjieff makes the same distinction, that um, when self-observing, it's not the same thing just as a kind of the textbook definition of introspection. There's more going on to it because anyone can introspect, Mm -hmm. even a person that doesn't have any developmental potential. Anyone can look at the course of their thoughts at certain times and see, okay, well, this associates with this. This is this level. This uh, this chain of thought is logical or not, and this is what proceeds from this thought or or this process. Would you say the difference is when you start to ask why? Why am I thinking this, and why am I thinking that? At yeah. least as an opening. Yeah. Yeah, and then you get more into the actual aims and motivations inspiring the thinking mm-hmm. and then to differentiate between the different levels. So why am I thinking, well, is that a thought that's just proceeding from some you know primitive drive that I have, some, some expectation that others have of me that I'm trying to fulfill? Is it from me myself or is it from social influences? Is, am I just programmed that way? Is it just my biology? Am, am I just, is that just the habitual way that I think? Is there another way? So getting started on this is not as complicated as people might think. You know, yeah. you can just start saying why, yeah. why well, am I doing this and why am I thinking that? And then also Dabrowski sorry, seems to, and Gurdjieff seem to have, they, they emphasize that there's also something that you are measuring by. Mm-hmm. The reason to ask why is to compare with something that may not yet be. 
Why, and why did I, you know, I have this other possibility. Why am I not measuring up to it? Yeah, that was the thing I was thinking of, Carolyn, was that uh, he's bringing in these ideas of uh, higher human psychology and that these things exist. And, you know, that's that's pretty much absent in um, most uh, psychology. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it, it's it, when you look at, you know, whatever uh, pop psychology idea, it's it, it oftentimes, you know, very materialistic. And bringing in these higher elements, that's, you know, it's, it's, it's just a, uh, it's a very human thing. You know, um, we see the same thing happening in, you know, pretty much all fields, whether it's a science or whatever else, you know, it's, it's just very materialistic and you can't look beyond the nuts and bolts. But what we're finding is that when you get, when you obsess over these nuts and bolts, you're just, you're, it's like spinning wheels. Mm-hmm. You know, you're not going anywhere. There is no higher thing to achieve. Yeah. Well, on that subject, uh, when we were watching um, the interviews with Dabrowski, uh, you know, he, he makes use of terms like spiritual. He makes reference to an astral body. Uh, he discusses um, one's uh, um, kind of... Um, resolution towards dying as a as a next step in a process as opposed to the end of all things and the end of all being um so like you were saying shane you know there's this uh very materialistic uh approach that even gets into psychology that he seemed to be um kind of divorced from uh you know he he's holistic he he recognizes that we're uh, spiritual beings, some of us, anyway. Uh, and um, I think that, you know, he doesn't by any stretch hit you over the head with, with these ideas. It, it isn't in any way woo-woo, uh, but the suggestion of them uh, gives you the impression that he, he knows, at least intuitively, uh, or senses that, you know, there, there's more to it. Mm-hmm. Well, there are he di- he distinguishes between universal and individual uh, traits um, of personality. So the universal traits will be certain certain moral attitudes and views, and um, and it, and to that he adds religious attitudes. So there is a religious spiritual component that seems to be inextricably linked with higher levels of development. So that there is a spiritual aspect that is there for all individuals at a high level of development. The individual aspects are the ones that are individual to each person, each personality, him or herself. And so those would be the the characteristic interests or talents of that person. So it might be a musical talent or genius or just a field of study. So it may be social work or psychology or just some certain field of academia or some profession. Mechanic. Yeah. Or or a carpenter. Carpenter. <laughs> and uh, and also the the individuality of exclusive bonds of friendship and love. And how for these individuals they will form these individual um well, exclusive relationships with specific people. So it's not like that their that their their love or or something is just equally dispersed to everyone. There are special relationships that develop at a high level. Now, of course, that's not to say that other people are cut off from the, the field of love. It's it's 
it's just that that's one aspect of it. Now, of course, a person at the level of personality will be working towards the greatest good and the greatest social good. And so, so interacting with people and living that life in the world and having that influence in the social environment that they find themselves in. Um, there's a, a couple directions I want to go. First of all, you mentioned the, the, the kind of mystical and spiritual aspects. So I, I want to get to that. So, so just uh, keep that in mind and bring it up if, if I don't get to it. But first, um, I want to read a, uh, a message on um, the overexcitabilities because one of the, the this is a very, um, very central topic to all his books and the theory in general. And that is that um, a person's developmental potential, like the reason that we have integrations is because of these things called overexcitabilities. So our systems, like our bodies, our nervous systems, our our minds, our intellects, our emotions, they seem to be very sensitive. So a stimuli will provoke um, a, an intense response. And without that response, without that sensitivity, it's like... Um, there, it's the it's the shock that that wakens things up, and without it, you'll just be integrated. You're just like a rock. It's like a, a rock that won't break. But a sensitive uh, a sensitivity allows that that breaking down, that disintegration to occur, which is the necessary process in order to to break down and then um, rebuild something else. So this is the the level the the aspect of his work, like you were saying, Shane, that has led to a kind of this. Uh, exclusive focus on uh, gifted children. So that that entire, um, well, it's pretty, it, it's kind of a, an example of a, a unilevel approach to Dabrowski, like focusing on this one aspect and then making it this uh, this be all end all when it's it's really taken out of context and not seen in the in the bigger picture. And so this this paragraph is about the different types of overexcitability um, that. That are the that are kind of the tools and the the things in a person which allow them the to develop in the first place. So, starting with sensual hyperexcitability, is an attitude of being sensitive to external stimuli such as the sense of color, form, and tone. Psychomotor hyperexcitability gives sharpness, speed, and an immediacy of of reaction and capacity for action. It is a permanent psychomotor readiness. Affectional hyperexcitability is evidence of the development of a property which is the controlling dynamism of the psyche. Imaginational hyperexcitability gives prospective and creative capabilities, as well as those of projecting and foreseeing. Finally, mental hyperexcitability results in easier and stronger conjugations, connections, of particular forms of increased sensibility which facilitates their developmental work and is a factor that controls and, and enriches the mentioned dynamism, creativity, psychomotor readiness, etc. None of the forms of hyperexcitability mentioned above develops in isolation. As a rule, these are mixed forms with predominance of this or that form. They are disintegrating factors and, in conjugation with hyperexcitability, permit preparation for higher forms of, dis of disintegration and secondary integration. So as opposed to just being, there's just being one kind of overexcitability, like um, let's say emotional, where, oh, you're so sensitive. He actually d divides it into five. So you can have an emotionally sensitive person, someone who will, re who will respond 
uh, with deep emotion to something that another person might not have any re- emotional response to. You've got sensual hyperexcitability. So this is, will be uh, uh, an intense response. It could be to art or to, to color or music. Um, I mean, being a, mu- a musician myself, I'll often listen to a piece of music and it'll make me cry just because it, it provokes uh, it, well, it provokes an emotion. But through that through that sensitivity to to sense stimuli, and then but you know I'll be in a in a room with with other people who are just completely seemingly oblivious to the profound <laughs> thing going on in this music, right? And uh, and so mental hyperexcitability. So people that, so uh, uh, an intense intellect, uh, a hyperactive intellect that sees all these connections and um, and. Um, ideas and works with those whereas other people can just be um not really intellectually interested in, their, in anything or their their mental processes are just pretty basic and don't, don't go beyond that and then imaginational so the ability to to um what's the word um visualize um to to look forward to the future to to imagine scenarios to mm-hmm. to 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 play with them in your head to go through scenarios in your head and see well if this happens maybe this happens or to or to or in the creative aspect of of inspiration and storytelling storytelling exactly mm-hmm. so these are all aspects uh, that contribute towards uh this this kind of um base of being able to to, to disintegrate because these are all disintegrative dynam or dis- aspects of a personality and so there's these five excitabilities and one of the things that, that Dabrowski did was to differentiate them and like he said they don't develop in isolation so you'll often have groups and one will be might be dominant so you might have a, a person who's primarily intellectual or primarily primarily emotional or primarily um, active and you can see it and you can see that in in people, you can see, you can well, usually you can see a dominant aspect of that personality. Well, that, that sounds an awful lot like Gershaw's yeah. men. One, exactly. Two, and yes. three. Yeah. One wonders if he didn't read a lot of Gershaw and just never mentioned it. <laughs> well, he did at least read some Gershaw. I know that, but uh, but like yeah, like you said, he doesn't mention it. <laughs> but well, or, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say with these uh, overexcitabilities, and they can they can be so uh, extreme that uh, it, it can form this um, this conflict, right? And so you're going to be struggling with that. And, you know, there's there's these options of, say, somebody with a sensual uh, hyper-excitability. Ex- uh, and, you know, so they might be attracted to video games as a way of dissociating mm-hmm. and kind of turning off, you know, that, uh, those, uh, those receptors. Um, so, you know, and, and we could see, uh, different types, you know, falling for, um, you know, whatever type of, uh, a dissociation or, you know, means of quelling uh, that those, um, those things that your emotions you're feeling or the intensity. With, uh, with the OEs as they're called, uh, one of the interesting things about them, Dabrowski writes about is that you can have again? There are different levels, and different OEs kind of can apply to to people more at different levels. So, if a person is primarily uh, sensual and psychomotor overactive, that is usually an indication of a, a lower level of development or developmental potential. Uh, 
So this will be uh, now because you can have, if you take the example of a psychopath, a psychopath can have ex- enormous reserves of energy, and they can just um, go about getting uh, getting whatever they want with what seems uh, an extreme amount of what you know what might look like will or those, willpower. Those super CEOs, yeah, of companies. They're just they're driven to get what they want, and that that takes a lot of energy and a lot of initiative. But without other types of OEs, that's that's the level that they're stuck at. So they'll they'll just be there, um, directed by those primitive drives to get what they want, with no possibility of anything higher. The 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 essential OE, according to Dabrowski, is the emotional overexcitability, because that's the one. Um, his his theory of development is is based on this emotional sensitivity, and the whole process is is based in emotion, because it's with it's through the emotional response. Um, well, it's when, like a perception of values is an emotional response because one one feels more important when, and there's this emotional component to all these different things. So, so if you think about the value for truth, like when I see a blatant lie, and then people believing that that makes me angry, there's an emotional response to that. But there are people that I've talked to that have no regard for truth; it just doesn't matter to them. And the same thing, like I said about music, about having an emotional response to music. There's this emotional component, and that's that's tied directly to these um, to values, to see to be able to feel what's important. Mm-hmm. Because a totally logical being, if you just have intellectual overexcitability, intellect without emotion can be brutal, mm-hmm. and not and and totally unemotionally brutal. Mm-hmm. It's just it's a robot with perfect logic. That uh, well, it reminds me of the latest Avengers movie, that uh, with the evil, the evil bad guy that you know logically comes to the conclusion that well, if things are so bad on this planet, then we should just kill everyone, right? That'll solve the problem. It's a logical, perfectly reasonable response, right? Mm-hmm. But without the without the emotional awareness, the emotional component, that it just stays on that low level, and so that's kind of the the curse of, of people with developmental potential is that these overexcitabilities mean that there's going to be disintegration. There's going to be conflict and there's going to be suffering. Well, the, the emotional response is your signal that something is wrong. Something, it creates the conflict. I'm having this emotion about a situation because how I think it should be and how it is don't match up. Mm-hmm. So that's sort of like, like your warning bell. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. if if you never have an emotional response to something, then you know you're dead. Or, mm-hmm. <laughs> but it it's it's the signal that there's something off and something yeah. needs to be dealt with. Well, you just answered my question, Carol, <laughs> and that was you know how does overexcitability in any of these spheres uh, initiate some kind of um, neurosis or um, or a, you know a friction that mm-hmm. would uh, cause you to question something or respond to it in a an intimate, authentic way uh, that isn't robotic, as Howard Harrison was saying. Mm-hmm. So, thank you. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, nothing ever happened <laughs> unless someone was pissed off about it. <laughs> well, it reminds me of that of that passage in In Search of the Miraculous, where Uspensky is describing how going around with St. Petersburg and just looking at the people on the street and realizing they're all dead, <laughs> just these zombies walking around, and that's that can be one of the shocking realizations of life on this planet is when you have that interaction with a person and when you finally realize that there's nobody home Mm -hmm. and that, um, 
I mean, I've heard stories and I've had experiences myself. I mean, you can talk to someone about, let's say, about torture or the murder of a person, like the 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 the, the cop mur- the the all the examples of cops murdering people on the streets, and you will talk to a person and they'll have just no problem with it. There'll be no emotional response. I have to say, you know, uh, working on SOT and reading SOT, there are some times when I'll see uh, the title of an article and I kind of already know what it's about, having read something similar. Mm -hmm. And I know that I'll get so angry (laughs) (laughs) if I read it uh, that I have to decide consciously that I'll have to read it tomorrow. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Not to put it off because it's it's information about our environment and our, you know, uh, knowing our environment is very important. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's, um, it's, it is really tough sometimes, which is why I'm thankful for this show because we get to rant about <laughs> all these sorts of things. Maybe we can move on to a different topic. Mm-hmm. So let's get well. Let's get back to a, a different topic. Uh, well, first, let's take a clip. Uh, this one was I found it quite enjoyable. It's from the interview. You can watch the the YouTube video. So the interviewer asks Dabrowski about drugs and uh, recreational drugs, and so this is part this of his the response. Seventies. You got to remember. <laughs> yeah. So this is a partial response, right here. And, well, such uh, even religious attitude to our drugs, like Timothy Leary, this professor of, of psychology, Timothy Leary, yes, who, well, uh, he told that this is, uh, uh, drug utilization means something like new and much more higher sacrament for, for, for the life. He, he was intelligent, suggestive, and he has had very great influence in relation to use, and I think this is terribly dangerous. Because this take from our reflection, our independence, all possible factor for development. We are in such a condition, we are submitted towards something who is not clearly known, and something who direct us. <laughs> now, like I said, that's a partial response because mm-hmm. before that he had said that that perhaps in an individual with some capacity for reflection, uh, a drug experience might be be a positive thing, or it could be utilized in a positive fashion. It might be the 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 doorway to uh, to um, the realization of the the reality of other possible worlds and other possible levels of being. Now, this is similar to Castaneda's work. So Castaneda's first book or two were, you know, if you just read them, you think, oh, you know, drugs are great. You know, let's try this out. And then uh, then further on, uh, Don Juan basically says, well, no, that was just to kind of, you know, to open up your, your perception. But it's you, you wouldn't want to do that anymore. <laughs> and so so that that's part of Dabrowski's response. He also said that for a person without any developmental potential, so this would be the majority of the of the population doing drugs is probably not a good thing because it'll only reinforce the the negative aspects of of whatever whatever development a potential person might have or it might um, 
it might put them into a, a state of disintegration and a negative state of disintegration, even to psychosis. And so, you know, we see, we see cases like that all the time. Um, so there is this multi-level aspect to it. Now, I'd think that he didn't go into it further on, but I'd guess from other things that Dabrowski has written and said that at a high level, a person would probably totally reject the use of recreational drugs for any type of, of spiritual or developmental purpose. Because like he said, that does take away our independence. It subordinates us to something outside of ourselves of which we, uh, which, which we don't know and which we're unaware. It's a, it's a big unknown and it's dangerous. Do you really want to be run by a chemical? Yeah. yeah. Well, well it, he had some very interesting things to say, even about meditation, in that anything, drugs or meditation or whatever, if it's used to escape suffering was a bad thing, that suffering was necessary for human development. Um, so anything that would damage individuation was a bad thing. And uh, I'm paraphrasing, but he talked about this idea. He in the, Earlier on in that clip, go watch the film, it's a good one, uh, he discusses, he gets asked a question about the Maharishi Yogi and Transcendental Meditation, and he... And he rips very, into him. <laughs> you know, he very casually starts out with, well, I haven't met him, so I can't speak personally, da-da-da. But this whole idea of becoming one and of dissolving the personality and all I think he thought was just horrible. So Nirvana is not a proper goal for a human being. It is the idea that one should develop one's individuality to its com completeness is, was in, for him the highest goal. And anything that seemed to be about subsuming yourself into this nirvanic allness was, was just a terrible thing to be doing. And he called it anti-human. Anti-human. Actually, I have that written down. There it is. Yeah. Anti-human. You, your goal is not to be in this eternal state of bliss no. where, not, where nothing affects you. At the same time, he was a proponent of meditation uh, and, and thought that um, meditative practices could be very helpful. Well, I think I wrote something else down about that, that the idea that experience must, become, must be processed by reflection mm -hmm. and meditative practices when used in that form to take your experiences against your goals of individuation and development, meditation can be very useful because it could provide more insight and new connections. But just for meditation for the sake of, of blotting out unpleasant experiences and things you don't want to deal with was, was as bad as it could get. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it lines up a lot with uh, what we're talking about with uh, uh, various forms of uh, psychological theories yeah, of, sure. of trying to you know, get rid of suffering and you know we see that a lot in the the new age you know um your your mind is the only thing that exists and it's this very just this completely selfish uh idea uh where you know reality really doesn't exist as it is as they teach and and that you know you're uh you can create your own reality that was the big thing that was that's Thankfully, not as popular as it, as it was. But. Well, didn't work. Yeah. Well, I think in one of his other books, I think he talks about what he calls spiritual narcissism. <laughs> but there's a quote in this book where in the section on on mysticism. Um, so he he's, again, making a differentiation. Uh, 
Dabrowski is all about making differentiations between commonly accepted uh, concepts and ideas. So kind of getting into them and showing that they're not as simple. They're in fact more complex and more multidimensional than most people give them credit. So on mysticism, he says that uh, mysticism is not limited to ecstasy alone. So this would be this whole, you know, blissful meditation. I am one with the universe and I have no, uh, no attachments to anything in this world, which is anti-human. He says, the mystic transposes his ecstatic experience to everyday life and shapes it in accordance with attained knowledge. So here's this thing about whatever gains you might get from meditation or mysticism, the important thing is how you integrate that with everyday life, with your interaction with the actual real world around you. It's not about escaping reality. It's about becoming a more useful force for good in this reality as a part of this reality. Mm-hmm. How fourth way is that? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, the mysticism of everyday life. And uh, maybe I'll play one last, well, yeah, one more clip. Um, we'd mentioned, we've mentioned the various levels, like his theory is based on different levels of humanity. And he, Dabrowski, distinguishes five different levels in humanity and in development. Of course, Gurdjieff does Devon. But the higher you get, the more obscure they get because they're, you know, who's got any experience of, of, of those levels. But so this is a description of level four. So this would be level one is the primary integration is the, per, the people with no real internal conflict between a higher and lower aspects themselves. Unilevel disintegration is those that are those that, um, that have some breakdown, but no forces to be able to to transcend that and to come out at a higher level. Level three is what he called spontaneous multi-level disintegration. So these will be this is spontaneous in the sense that it's provoked, that it's a it's an automatic reaction to to the world or to oneself. And so this will be the, like the crises, puberty, and yeah, so that things will, that are imposed on you. Yeah, well, puberty would be one example in like in a in the life cycle of everyone. But then there will be like for those with developmental potential and with these overexcitabilities, these these can be provoked just in everyday life at any time, and just based on certain life circumstances, um, not necessarily biological. Mm. And then level four will be the 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 self conscious, um, self directed, multi level disintegration, which is actually um, so it follows a program developed be, by the individual themselves. You'd be seeking out. These yeah. situations like Castaneda's go find yourself a petty tyrant. Yeah, that would be part of it. Mm-hmm. And, but uh, also, so that would be w- in relation to the external world, but also in relation to the internal world to, to, um, through like rigorous self observation and self analysis to, to identify that, to like root out those parts and to find them and to, to, pro- to provoke these inner reactions just completely within oneself. So there's an internal and an external aspect to this. And this will be, the, the constant process of development that that a person in full control of themselves um, engages in in order to reach um, ideally the personality ideal so the the complete ideal of what they have for their personality and for who they want to be and um, and for that then to do their lives and the way they interact with with everyday life so this is just a short description that he gives of level four individuals. They, they are much more organized. They are 
much more systematized. They are much more steady and stabilized on the highest level. They see clearly their concrete ideal. They dynamized this ideal. They differentiate very clearly between external and internal media. They differentiate their inner media very clearly. They know what means concrete ideal, social and, and individual. They know all this and they utilize in, in their development all such uh, factors. Again, something that's to aspire to, but that we don't see much in the world around us. Um, I'm just going to read a couple more interesting bits from the book. Quotations that caught my interest. This one's on shame. It's short. Not Shane. <laughs> shame. Shame reflects, in a way, one's readiness to feel concerned about the harmony between one's own moral resources and their external manifestations. So, again, like we said at the beginning of the show, a lot of psychological theories are all about eliminating shame and guilt. They're nasty feelings and we just need to get rid of them. Whereas Dabrowski would embrace these and say these are actually the things that we need to work with. Because what is shame or guilt if not the the sign this the the sign that we give ourselves that we're doing something wrong that we're either not living up to to the people around us in a way that is healthy or that we're not living up to what we ourselves want to be and how we want to act and we feel that's where guilt comes from so we feel guilty if we behave in a in a nasty way well hopefully we do and if, for a person to feel no guilt that either means that they're probably a nasty person or they're, they're a, you know, a perfect individual who, and, you know, how many perfect individuals are there around here? If you're not feeling guilt, then you're not quite human. Uh, one of the ideas proposed in the uh, adaptive unconscious is talking about how, just how massive and uh, controlling and powerful uh, our subconscious is. And so we get this impression that it can be really uh, tough to penetrate that with with our conscious minds. Mm -hmm. But we have these things like shame and guilt. And Dabrowski talks about you know, being able to utilize uh, these things to tap into the subconscious. Um, I have a, a quote related to that uh, as well. Um, with the feeling of guilt, there usually arises simultaneously the need for self-accusation, penalty, and expiation. The feeling of guilt is a poignant experience and is connected with the feeling uh, with the experience of fear and trembling. That's a, a reference to uh, Kierkegaard. Kierkegaard, he got it from Paul, though. Yeah, uh, that's right. Um, as we have shown, it is a considerably greater influence on the whole of personality than the simple dissatisfaction with oneself or feeling of shame. When this experience is accompanied by the process of consciousness, it reaches deeper into the subconscious than other experiences. On one hand, it reaches with its roots into heredity and often into the phase of early childhood injuries, 
And on other, it is uh, transposed into feelings of responsibility for the immediate or more distant environments or for the whole of society. So it can be pretty powerful stuff. Yeah, I'm kind of glad you read that, Shane, because I was thinking, you know, there are times where feelings of shame and guilt are appropriate and even growth inducing. And there, you know, there's this idea of toxic shame that um, is, uh, can be foisted upon you. It's manipulative. It's, you know, when you're enmeshed in a a dysfunctional environment, you're feeling shame for being alive. Um, And, you know, I I suppose Dabrowski would say that you can work with that as well. Um, But just uh, some distinctions there um, when, when you're, experiencing these types of things is uh can be helpful yeah i think that distinction is you know really important because there are these pathological elements uh that you know if we're not if we're not identifying our natural normal shame and uh distinguishing it from what is pathological shaming Mm -hmm. uh or could you know you could call it you know just like sadistic behavior uh there's um an article that's up on sought now uh, about a uh, a young girl who her father you know was publicly you know it's being said that he was publicly shaming her uh he cut her hair and posted the video on YouTube and you know saying like look at what you did or are you are you happy now or you know something like that and um and then she committed suicide and so a lot of the you know comments are around you know this idea of shaming and you know that that um you know parents shouldn't be shaming their children and and this isn't this isn't in line with what we're talking about mm-hmm. uh you know this this guy it, it's he's 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 clearly um you know not um he's clearly a pathological type i mean he even put up this uh fundraising oh god yeah the, the father you're talking yeah, about. The yeah, the father. Mm-hmm. Um, he put up, you know, this... Start a fundraiser for the funeral. Right. Uh, pretty sick fellow. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, we just we, we see this idea of, um, you know, how shaming is bad, and we just need to keep in mind that there is this distinction, like you said, Elon, and that we can use uh, our... We can identify, you know, what our natural shame is for things that we have done wrong, um, and you know, distinguish it separately from you know uh, these kind of instances that are that are more overtly pathological. Now, those Dabrowski's, you know, when you start inquiring within yourself, what is mine and what is not mine. Mm-hmm. So either one is a place to start. <laughs> well, we're running near the end of the show, so I think we're going to continue. Next week, we'll just get a little bit more in because there's some more things we want to get to. But before we do, I think we will run a bit, just a bit over, just to discuss some recent news stories and maybe make some connections to to Dabrowski. So first example, first two examples I've got. First, uh, a new leak hacked email from the Ukrainian hacktivist group Cyberbrekut. They released an email uh, allegedly from Tatiana podobinsky Stuk, staff member of the U.S. Embassy in Ukraine, addressed to Major General Andriy Tehran, chief of the Joint Center for Ceasefire Control and Coordination in Ukraine. 
So this is the U.S. Embassy sending an email to the guy responsible for the overseeing of the ceasefire agreement uh, from Minsk Protocols. Uh, when was that? February. A few months ago? February. Yeah. Now, in this email, I'll, re- I'll read this. This is part of it. So Tatiana says to Andre, sending you pictures which can become a serious problem for you. I can explain them if the monitoring mission, OSCE, obtains them. Consult the team leader and think about a possible action, how you can justify them or present them as fake. Now these... So figure out how to lie about this and yeah. make it convincing. Because these were pictures showing uh, the presence and the buildup of heavy artillery and tanks on the uh, on the front line in Ukraine. This is the... There, there's supposed to be this kind of DMZ, demilitarized zone. It's supposed like, to be 20 miles in both yeah. directions. And so, of course... In the first couple of weeks after that, uh, Donetsk and Lugansk pulled back all their weapons. Ukraine said they were doing it, never kind of, never quite got around to it, and then eventually, you know, several weeks later, said, "Okay, we've done most of it." They never actually got rid of all of them, and they, in fact, have brought more in. And so there are these satellite photos that the U.S. Embassy is sending this guy saying, "Okay, well, you know, if anyone gets a hold of these, you're going to have to be able to explain them, lie about them, come up with some kind of plausible explanation, or you know, whatever." Um, and so the, the point of this is that the U S knew about it. They have known about it since February because these photographs, these satellite photographs are from March, April, and May. So this whole time, the U S has known that Kiev has blatantly violated the Minsk agreements. Of course, it's no surprise to anyone with a brain Mm -hmm. that it has been happening or that it would have happened totally predictable, but just this, just to know that, that, yeah, they know, and yet at the same time, they have the U.S. State Department and U.S. officials have been have been blaming Russia and Donetsk and Lugansk for breaking the ceasefire mm-hmm. and, and for violating. Should be able to stop it. Yeah, and the whole time it's been them, those dirty bastards. Mm-hmm. Now, if that email itself doesn't you know, demonstrate overexcitability, not oh, no, not well in <laughs> me, oh, yeah. No, but for me, that demonstrates just the lowest level of thinking and and strategic thinking Mm -hmm. and planning and cunning. Just a total disregard for truth and a total ability to just manipulate facts in whatever direction one wants. Mm -hmm. Oh, you know, here's some photos of you guys totally breaking every agreement that you've come to. So you got to figure out just how you can massage the facts and make them look good. Mm -hmm. I mean. How sick is that? Mm-hmm. Well, and to put this kind of in terms of uh, Dabrowski's theory, uh, and more in terms of um, you know a, a macro social application, when Americans you know accept these lies and believe these lies, you know say they're they they are beginning to question things and oh well you know the State Department says this and Kiev says this, it's it's this process of. Uh, uni-level disintegration where, you know, they begin questioning things and then they yep. believe they choose to accept these lies. Mm-hmm. Well, you also Basically. have to look at the fact that, that they are only presented a small fraction mm-hmm. of, the, of the total picture. So on one level, you might absolve them, but on the other level, you say that they should be looking for more sources of information than just mm-hmm. CNN. You know, mm-hmm. so in that sense, yeah, I think there is, there is, an there is responsibility. Uh, yeah, I think there is an element of um, willful mm-hmm. ignorance involved. Absolutely. 
Just one more from me here, uh, because I put it up in the show description, so I figure I've got to talk about it. <laughs> Scott Walker, governor of Wisconsin. He is prepared to sign into law to week abortion ban without any exceptions for victims of rape or incest. Now, his reason for this, he argues that women are concerned with those issues only in the initial months of pregnancy. I mean, I think for most people who are concerned about that, it's in the, it's in the initial months when they're most concerned about it. So if a woman has been raped and impregnated by her rapist, it's only really a big deal in the first month or two. Or but once she has the baby, she'll be so happy about it. Yeah, and once you know, once she's twenty-one weeks pregnant, then you know things change at that point, right? There's uh, <laughs> she automatically just becomes not concerned, and so there's no real reason to. I mean, what a slime ball! You know what? They keep reelecting this. Guy. I have two stories also on Slop. dated February two thousand eleven, wherein. Republican Keith Ellison, Democrat of Minnesota, which I guess is right next door to Wisconsin, co-chair of the House Progressive Caucus, said that Wisconsin's Republican Governor Scott Walker is behaving, quote, like a dictator. That is like, you know, not even trying to dance around the term. Uh, in the 2011, he Walker refused to back down on a budget measure curtailing collective bargaining rights of public employee unions. Fourteen Democrats fled the state to protest the measure and prevent Republicans from getting the votes. So they literally ran away from the legislature to keep from having enough people in the legislature to make a legitimate vote. It's, uh, so he's he's got like a whole a whole range of things. So not only is he squashing women's rights, he is very, very big on um, beating down the unions out of existence. So there was that. He uh, was critical to the cause of union bargaining rights as the outcome could influence the direction of other states seeking to balance their budgets. Well, that was a, a criticism of him, that if he gets away with it, a bunch of other states are going to try it. And then in April... Uh, reports are surfacing. This is also in 2011. Scott Walker is now preparing his next assault on the democratic political process in the state of Wisconsin. He was preparing to do a sort of a pop assessment of different municipalities to give them a stress test to see whether or not they are capable of shouldering unexpected financial burdens. If they failed the test, uh, he had an eye towards permitting the governor to take over municipalities that failed to meet with Walker's approval. Uh, should these reports prove accurate, Walter's plan would resemble, if not directly, the mirror, mirror legislation signed in by Michigan, which gives that, that governor the extraordinary powers to take over municipalities when he determines them to be in financial trouble. So here's a way of, of abrogate, well, taking powers that should belong on the local level into his hands. So, I mean, that's a dictator. And yet they reelected this guy in 2014, and now he wants to run for president. Yeah. Well, that's, that's why he's doing all of these things, so, so that he can appeal to his base, oh. his base base. Apparently he is a, a very large base recipient. Instincts. Yes. <laughs> well, the Koch brothers apparently are funding him big time. So there you go. Yeah. So just to bring this back to Dabrowski, yeah. talk about an individual with poor quality receptors of reality. I mean, to to make a statement like that about 
about pregnant women. Oh yeah. I mean, just no matter how intelligent this guy might be, you know, with math or something. Yeah. Talk about being a total idiot. No empathy. No empathy. No conscience. No ability to put oneself to put himself in the position of another person and to demonstrate that. Not even the pretense of it. He didn't even pretend to be able to do it. Mm-hmm. I mean, there are better psychopaths out there that can <laughs> take it. Yeah. yeah, but no, he can't even do that. I mean, God help the kids if he's got any. Jeez. Well, I wanted to just go over a couple of stories. Uh, speaking back to that story about uh, Cyber Burkut and uh, what's going on there in Ukraine, because uh, this week um, U.S. Defense Secretary Ashton Carter, who just seems to be uh, putting his, uh, I, I'm, I'm just speechless by the numbers of, of truly aggressive and insane things he's managed to do and say in a matter of days. But here it goes. Um, U.S. Defense Secretary Ashton Carter is meeting today at the headquarters of the U.S. European Command in Stuttgart, Germany, with two dozen U.S. military commanders and European diplomats to discuss how to escalate their economic and military campaign against Russia. They will assess the impact of current economic sanctions, as well as NATO's strategy of exploiting crisis in eastern Ukraine to deploy ever greater numbers of troops and military equipment to eastern Europe, threatening Russia with war. A U.S. defense official told Reuters that the main purpose of the meeting was to, quote, assess and strategize on how the United States and key allies should think about heightened tensions with Russia over the past year, end quote. The official also said Carter was open to providing the Ukrainian regime with lethal weapons, a proposal which has been put forward earlier in the year. Most provocatively, a report published by the Associated Press reports that the Pentagon has been actively considering the use of nuclear missiles against military targets inside Russia in response to what it alleges are violations of the 1987 Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces, or INF, treaty. Russia denies U.S. claims that it has violated the INF by flight-testing ground-launched cruise missiles with a prohibited range. Three options being considered by the Pentagon are the placement of anti-missile defenses in Europe aimed at shooting Russian missiles out of the sky, a quote-unquote counterforce option that would involve preemptive non-nuclear strikes on Russia military sites, and finally, quote, countervailing strike capabilities, end quote, involving the preemptive deployment of nuclear missiles against targets inside Russia. The AP states, quote, the options go so far as one implied, but not stated explicitly, that would improve the ability of U.S. nuclear weapons to destroy military targets on Russian territory, end quote. In other words, the U.S. is actively preparing nuclear war against Russia. Um, so all of these aggressive acts by the U.S., all of these plans are, are all based on lies, pure and simple. And uh, finally, finally, um, and, and speaking much to, I think, Dabrowski's um, uh, discussion of you know, levels of, of being uh, and personal growth, we have a statement from Putin 
in response to many of the allegations that have been made against Putin and Russia. In an article entitled, Russia Would Attack NATO Only in Mad Person's Dream, uh, the article begins, Russia is not building up its offensive military capabilities overseas and is only responding to security threats caused by U.S. and NATO military expansion on its borders. Russian President Vladimir Putin told Italian outlet Il Corriere della Sera. Speaking to the paper on the eve of his visit to Italy, Putin stressed that one should not take the ongoing, quote, Russian aggression and, quote, scaremongering in the West seriously, as a global military conflict is unimaginable in the modern world. Quote, I think that the only that only an insane person and only in a dream can imagine that Russia would suddenly attack NATO. I think some countries are simply taking advantage of people's fears with regard to Russia. They just want to play the role of frontline countries that receive some supplementary military, economic, financial, some other aid, Putin said. So I, I kind of... Breath. Uh, I, I was just very happy to hear him say this because uh, here he's putting it out there. It's insane. Mm-hmm. It's totally insane. It's insane in the way that uh, that Israel accuses Iran of of trying to build nuclear weapons, uh, as if a Iran is actually trying to do it, and b once they do, the first you know point of action would be to bomb and or nuke Israel. It's totally insane, and um, and it had to be said, and I think it, it's been a long time in coming. It's total insanity, and I hope everybody in the West gets to read this, even though they'll probably uh, they'll probably dismiss it because it's Putin. Well, you know, Putin kind of provides a, uh, an opportunity <clears throat> if we look at uh, Dabrowski's theory of and you know how he was talking about advisors and that advisors can help with uh you know individuals development when they're in these periods of crisis and putin on the world stage you know he is acting towards these uh these higher ideals of partnership and and in working together and whereas the united states they're using they're manufacturing these crises uh as a means of um this disaster capitalism that the the shock doctrine that that Naomi uh, Klein wrote about, mm-hmm. and when they're in control of the process, when they're the advisors, you know people reintegrate at that lower level, yeah, and it's just to to steer things uh, towards the direction that they want to. Mm-hmm. It's even kind of interesting that uh, when folks describe the situation, uh, you know, they did the it's the U.S. that is a a unipolar power uh, as opposed to a unilevel level of being. And Russia is uh, aspiring to a multipolar, and and you can connect that to Mm -hmm. multilevel way of being. So I think the analogy fits, Shane. All right. Well, I think we should end it there and pick up next week. Now, uh, so yeah, we'll see you all next week. We'll continue the discussion. Mm-hmm. Check out a copy of the book. Yeah, it's available on Red Pill Press. Yeah, go to Amazon.com. Go to if you go to CreateSpace. 
Um, you buy it there, then the, the rights holders actually get a bigger royalty. So if you want to help out Dabrowski's, the estate of Casimir Dabrowski, buy it there. And um, yeah, so we'll see you next week. Tune in tomorrow for Behind the Headlines. We're actually going to close the show today with another clip. This is uh, a reading of a poem that Dabrowski wrote for, I'd say, it's called Be Greeted Psychoneurotics. And it's addressed to the to those people who are suffering and um, suffering in the society where they have yet to pretty much realize um, their place within it or the the positive aspects of what they're going through. So it's kind of a, uh, a call to uh, reaching out to those people, those souls in struggle. So, And let's not forget our fellow psychoneurotics uh, giving the health and wellness show Friday, Friday. 10 a.m. as well. Yeah. So uh, we'll see you all then. And everyone take care. All right. Thanks for listening, everybody. Thank you. Take good care. Be greeted, psychoneurotics, for you see sensitivity in the insensitivity of the world, uncertainty among the world's certainties. For you often feel others as you feel yourselves. For you feel the anxiety of the world and its bottomless narrowness and self-assurance. Be greeted for your phobia of washing your hands of the dirt of the world, for your awkwardness in dealing with practical things and your practicalness in dealing with unknown things for your transcendental realism and lack of everyday realism, for your creativity and ecstasy, for your maladjustment to that which is and adjustment to that which ought to be, for the loneliness and strangeness of your ways. Be greeted. Who is out passing through very difficult uh, experience and even something like psychoneurosis and neurosis? We cannot understand human beings and we cannot realize our multidimensional and multi-development toward higher and higher levels.